The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olfer. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. This series from 2 Corinthians is God's Call to Church Action. Today, Part 2, The Salutation, from our text, 2 Corinthians 1, 1-7. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Now will you turn with me to the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. And our attention this morning is to be directed to the first two verses, the opening verses of this precious document we call the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Salute to the church. For visiting friends here this morning, we've opened a series entitled God's Call to Church Action. And as we introduced it last week, so we're going to find it throughout this entire epistle, that almost every verse is just that, a call to church action. Paul has written his first letter, which we know as the first letter to the Corinthians, calling the church to order throughout this entire epistle with that emotion, passionate appeal, so characteristic of the apostle anointed by the Spirit. He calls a local church into action. This morning, from the angle of salutation, we're going to find this same theme again and again, almost in every word. Now, uh, just for a, a moment or two, we'll go to a bit of background and then right into our message. It was about the autumn of A.D. 57 or 58 that Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians. His address at the time was not Ephesus, as many suppose, but Macedonia, where the apostle had traveled on his way to Troas after waiting in that latter place for a short time for the return of Titus. Titus, whom he had sent to Corinth to find out what kind of reaction had taken place in the church after the reading of his first epistle. The report that Titus brought back had both delighted the apostle, but also profoundly disturbed him. There was a majority group within the church that had received this letter in a spirit of true repentance and with a willingness to put wrong things right. But there was also a minority group in the church that was adamantly opposed to him and determined to discredit his authority, to challenge his message, and even to impugn his character. So it was with these thoughts in mind that Paul set himself to the task to dictate what we call today his second letter to the Corinthians. In his characteristic style, the apostle commences his epistle with a salutation which is both tender and meaningful. As G. Campbell Morgan remarks, Paul is going to complain. He's going to scold them a little presently, but he's not doing it yet. He is greeting them, and his greeting is with a great word. So let us examine and understand what we're calling this morning the salute to the church, the salutation. First of all, look with me at what I'm calling the author of the salutation. That's in verse 1. The author of the salutation. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, as was the procedure in New Testament times, Paul authenticates this letter with his own signature and at once confronts his reasons with the divine credentials for ever writing such an epistle, for ever preaching the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he would have us understand first the seal of his authority. Look at that first verse again. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
Now, no one could read the New Testament without being impressed with the Holy Spirit's use of this word, apostle. It occurs 10 times in the Gospels, 28 times in the Acts, 38 times in the Epistles, and three times in the book of the Revelation. It is a word which is derived from a very common verb, to send. But its usage in the New Testament emphasizes the elements of commission and underscores the idea of the authority which is committed to the one sent and the responsibility to the sender. It's a word of commission. And Paul dictates this letter and opens with those great words, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now remember, our Lord Jesus Christ was called an apostle, the apostle of our confession, Hebrews 3 and 1. The twelve disciples were known as apostles, and later on there were others, such as James, the Lord's brother, Barnabas, Androconus, Julian, Silvanus, and Timothy, who were recognized as apostles. Except for the technical connotation of this term as applied to the twelve, the term apostle is always used in the New Testament to indicate the sign of divine authority. It was in this sense, then, that Paul used it in writing his epistle to the Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've already observed, his authority had been discredited by false teachers and, alas, by some members in the church at Corinth as well. So with confidence and with that inward sense of witness and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he says, Paul, an apostle, Paul, a commissioned man, Paul a man with a seal of authority upon his life and ministry. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, lest he should be thought to be individualistic and exclusivistic in relation to this divine authority. Notice Paul includes his son in the faith, Timothy, to whom he refers as our brother. Timothy had been absent from Paul when he wrote his first epistle, and Sosthenes had taken his place. But now Timothy is alongside of him again, and Paul lists his name as a joint authenticator of this tremendous epistle. Now there's an important lesson here for Christian leaders at this present time. Before we earn the right to call the Church of Jesus Christ to action, before we earn the right to stand on the street corner and preach the message of the gospel, we must have this seal of authority upon our lives. The reason why the church is indifferent to our message and the world outside is so utterly insensitive to our witness is because, by and large, as Christian men and women, we don't know this seal of authority. As I look across this audience this morning, see young people here and older ones, all of you engage in some form of service for Jesus Christ, either in the church or in your daily vocations. I want to ask a very simple question I've been asking myself all week, and particularly this morning. Is the authority of God upon your life? Is the seal of God's authority upon my life? Can you honestly say, I do know, I do know the fullness of the Holy Ghost. I know what it is to live in a cloudless and glorious sense of fellowship with my God. I do know the anointing of the Spirit upon my life. Acts 1 and 8 has been fulfilled in my life. For Jesus said, the power of the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. That's authority. That's endowment. That's anointing. The power of the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. 
and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. What challenged the people of Christ's day was the fact that when Jesus stepped from the banks of Jordan through that temptation experience into his first days of ministry, men and women generally, yes, and individually, acknowledged at once that there was an authority upon his life. They were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he spake as one having authority, and not as the scribes, not as the Pharisees. There is an authority today in ecclesiasticism, but is it the authority of the Holy Ghost? Is it that authentic authority? Can it be said in the personal, devotional, and spiritual sense that you are an apostle, a sent one, when you walk into that executive office, when you stand behind that lecturing desk, when you sit in that classroom and look into the face of your professor, when you meet the tradesmen who call at the door, housewife, when you negotiate business with unbelievers, they detect upon your life a seal of authority. There is a mark upon your life that distinguishes you as taking and having a quality of life which is humanly inexplicable. It demands a supernatural explanation. Authority. There is no greater need in the church of Jesus Christ than that heavenly authority today. An authority which claims not only respect from men and women outside, even though they may disagree with our message, even though our message and our lie constitute a convicting influence, and they want to pick up stones to stone us, but deep down in their hearts, they're bound to respect us, and they're bound to respond. It may be an antagonism, it may be in the acceptance of our message, but it's an authority which demands a verdict. We speak of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and thank God that this is the heritage of all Christians. The Apostle Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit, and it's the present continuous tense. Be ye being filled with the Spirit. And he's addressing his words to husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants. And we might ask, we might add, pastors and members of any given local church. Be filled with the Spirit. But I wonder how many of us know not just the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but his anointing. I want to remind you again that our Savior was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. But it was only as he stood on the banks of Jordan in that act of total yieldedness to the will of God and his readiness to do all that was demanded of him. For he said, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And he identified himself with the great task of redemption, that of winning men and women to Jesus Christ. It was in that moment that heaven opened and the Spirit came upon him like a dove and he was anointed with the Spirit. Do you know that anointing, my friend? Have you that seal of authority upon your life? Were you to leave this place to write to an unconverted father, mother, professor, friend, colleague? Would you be able to say, I, Stephen Olford, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the authority? But these opening words not only delineate for us what we've called the seal of his authority, but in the second place, notice the sphere of his activity. The sphere of his activity. Proceed with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Not only the seal of his authority, but the seal of his activity. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Paul uses this phrase not only to underscore his apostleship, but to describe the sphere of his activity. As we shall see presently, the Corinthians had accused this man 
a fickleness in changing his plans and therefore a failure in doing the will of God. But Paul makes quite clear in these opening words of his greetings that the only sphere in which he moved, the only orbit in which he acted and performed was the sphere of the will of God. There had come a time in his life when he had yielded his body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which was his reasonable service. And from that moment, he was ever and always proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I don't know how this challenges your heart, but I'm telling you it's made me very humble and very sober in the presence of God. I've asked myself again and again, Stephen Olford, do you know the seal of God's authority upon your life? And Stephen Olford, do you move only and always in the seal of God's will? Is your activity an orbit which can be described as the will of God? Our religious circles of today are frantic with activism. It is the age of activism. Not passivity, but activism. Religious activism is one of the greatest banes in Christian world today. We're all active, but I wonder how many of us can really claim that in our activity, we're found within the sphere of God's will. Ah, we can work outside of the will of God and we can be very active. We can be very busy. We can wear ourselves out to a frazzle. We can have our heart attacks. We can be fatigued. We can have our nervous breakdowns. We can be expended and yet not fulfill the will of God. Do you know what it is to be in the center of God's will? There is no happier or safer place on earth or in heaven than the center of God's will. Only in the will of God can we know the experience of true salvation. Only in the will of God can we know the experience of true sanctification. Only in the will of God can we know the experience of true service for Jesus Christ. It's the will of God that every man shall be saved. This is the will of God even your sanctification. To prove the will of God, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is the essence of service. Are you found in the will of God this morning? Precious young lives here this morning, I crave for you. I crave for you jealously that not one day, not one week, not one month, not one year of your young life should be wasted through being outside of the orbit of his will. Are you in the will of God? Can you say very simply and humbly this morning, I am a sent one with the authority of God upon my life, operating only within the orbit of God's will. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Not only because commissioned by the will of God, but operating in and only through the will of God. Paul had learned a deep lesson, and undoubtedly from his master, even Jesus Christ, who came out of heaven with the words of prophetic utterance, Lo, I come to do thy will, O my God, thy laws within my heart. And as a boy of twelve, we hear him looking up to heaven and saying, I must be about my father's business. And the greatest statement that ever came from the lips of our Savior, we find in John chapter 4, when he said, My meat, my meat, that which I eat, that which I drink, that which sustains me, that which satisfies me, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work, the seal of his authority, the seal of his activity, the seal, an apostle, the seal, the will of God. My brother, my sister, we cannot enter into this great action to which God calls us 
as a local fellowship or as individuals until we know not only that divine authority, but also that divine activity brought in us and through us by God the Holy Ghost. So much then for the author of the salutation. But these words of greeting also introduce us to what we're calling the addressees of the salutation. The addressees of the salutation, the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints which are in all Achaia. Corinth was a place of notorious immorality. It was a sin of vice. It was a city of wickedness. It was a stronghold of paganism and darkness. Yet in the midst of that corruption, there flourished a little colony of heaven. And Paul here salutes this body of Christians and says, the church of God, which is in Corinth. And the words he uses are of great descriptive significance. At the very heart of that city, Paul envisaged, first of all, what we're calling the local church of God. The local church of God. The church of God, which is at Corinth. Now that word church simply means assembly or called out ones. Originally, the term was applied to an assembly of Greeks called out of their homes and shops for democratic purposes in the deliberation of their political activities. But Jesus rescued this word and gave it a connotation completely new and different. He talked about the called out ones as my church, my church. As I look across this audience this morning, I believe God is sent into this sanctuary, called out once. There came a day in your life when you heard the call, repent and believe the gospel. And humbly you came broken at the cross, laid down the burden of your sin, claimed the forgiveness and pardon that only God can give. And you entered into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ and you became one of the ecclesia, called out once. You're part of the church part of the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul uses this term in this fashion. What a picture this conjures up in our minds. Corinth, as we've already remarked, was one of the most immoral and wicked cities in the ancient world, possibly the most wicked city in the ancient world. 3,000 prostitutes from the great temple up on the hill plied their trade throughout the streets under the guise of religion, day in and day out. To be called a Corinthian was to be called a dirty man, an evil man. It was a filthy city. Yet amidst all that filth and defilement and unwholesomeness of that metropolis, Paul could write, unto the church of God, which is in Corinth. What a miracle! What a miracle! What was true of Corinth has been true of the cities down through the centuries, even to our own day. At the very center of Satan's stronghold, God plants the flag of his church and defies the powers of darkness. Such churches may have their disorders. Such churches may have their divisions. Such churches may have their difficulties. But when all is said and done, it's still a miracle of grace that right at the heart of Manhattan here this morning, there is one little local fellowship amongst others centered in this sanctuary called out once. A miracle of grace transcending human explanation. You can't explain it. You cannot explain it. It's a miracle of grace that right here amidst all the filth and wickedness of a city with all the oppression of the psychic, yes, forces of a metropolitan area, right at the heart of what's being called Babylon on the Hudson. There it is, a local church of called out ones. 
all in the process of being sanctified and purified. We're not perfect. Nobody agrees that we're perfect. And that's how it should be. We are, as Dr. Griffith Thomas used to put it, a society of saved sinners, and our only right of entrance into a local church is the fact that we've owned up to our sinnership. We have confessed our pride, our arrogance, our sinfulness, our wickedness, our wretchedness, our need of salvation, and we've bowed at the cross, and we've accepted the pardon, and our past has been cleansed, and the indwelling life of Jesus Christ is making us purer and purer and purer every day. And we're a company of called out ones, made saints, separated within the heart of this great city, a local church, a miracle of grace. I pause to ask, are you part of that body? Can you claim to be a member of Christ's church? I'm not talking about the Baptist church. I'm not talking about the Presbyterian church. I'm not talking about the Methodist church. I'm asking, are you a part of the church of Christ, God's church? When were you called out? When did you respond? When did the miracle of grace take place in your heart? The local church. And whether it's recognized at the high presidential levels of our country or by the man who walks the street, I want to tell you, and I want to tell you straightly and conclusively, that the only hope for our country is not legislation, it's not political maneuvers, the hope of our country, if we're not going to continue our skit down to destruction amidst all we see around us today that oppresses us, whether amongst our young people or our older ones, the hope of America today is the hope of a church revived, impacting every avenue and area of life. And I am so happy that I happen to be part of a little local church right at the heart of the millions of the metropolitan area of New York, I happen to be here this morning, and I happen to be sharing in God's great activity in working through his church, in reaching men and women for Jesus Christ, and breaking through into industry and politics and every other area, and even bringing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to bear upon the social concerns of our day. It was a local church, and we're a local church. That's how Paul envisaged it. Filth all around, but at the heart of that great city a local church, the Church of God in Corinth. But I want to go a little step further. With that local church, Paul saw something else, and this has thrilled my heart. I don't know if it struck you this way as you've been reading and rereading the second epistle to the Corinthians as I exhorted you some weeks ago. Yes, with that local church, Paul saw, listen, the larger Church of God, the larger Church of God. Yes, the church in Corinth, but he adds, with all the saints which are in all Achaia with all the saints that are in all Achaia. This is the thrilling fact about a local church. Her people are never alone, even though often they may be tempted to think so. Linked with every local assembly is that larger family of saints found not in on earth, but in heaven. Paul's reference in this verse had to do, of course, with the two Roman provinces known as Macedonia and Achaia. The latter included the cities of Athens, Corinth, and Sancria, all of which contained saints. And it didn't matter whether it was actually in Corinth or away over there in Rome or in Athens or in Sancria. There were saints found in every place. That little local church at Corinth was part of that larger church. And there is nothing more strengthening to the believers met in one place as we are here this morning than to recognize that we're part of the total church of Jesus Christ, which is multiplying every hour of every day 
through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And in spite of what our critics are telling us about the church today, in spite of panic-stricken men and maneuverers who are trying to bring a world church into being through outside organization instead of recognizing the reality of the church in Christ by union with the head, in spite of all that, I want to tell you this, that the church of Jesus Christ is growing and it's growing by leaps and bounds. When I hear missionaries coming back from Indonesia and telling us of the revival sweeping that country where thousands are being converted overnight and great villages being caught up in the movement of the Spirit and people, some of them who've never heard the full gospel as you've heard, moved by the Spirit are turning to God and seeking missionary help. When I hear, when I hear stories like that, and when I think of what's happening even in Russia under the pressures there with a growing church that is praying for affluent America that she may not fall through the sheer comfortable indifference in which she finds herself. When I think of saints in China that are slipping out to tell us that underground the church of Jesus Christ is going ahead, I come back to the words of my Savior who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I repeat, despite all our critics tell us, when movements have come and movements have gone, when philosophies have emerged and philosophies have been utterly dissipated, when the scientists have said their highest and best and reached their peak of achievement, when all that is over, I'll tell you what will still remain. I'll tell you what will still remain. The Church of Jesus Christ. We're a local church, but we're part of a great family on earth and some even in heaven. A multitude that no man can number. The Church of Jesus Christ. And in all the deepest sincerity of my heart, and without any sense of arrogance or false pride, I want to say, I'm glad I'm in the Church of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, my friend, until the work of building that church is complete, and the church is raptured to her heavenly home, we shall never be left alone. Never be left alone. For God has his witnessing saints in every place of the earth. What a privilege to be one of God's saints in a dark world. Saints in a kaya. Saints in a dark world. Let us see to it, every one of us here this morning, that we live out the full significance of our sainthood by being separated from sin and dedicated wholly and completely to God. That is the manner and measure of our sainthood. Separated from sin, dedicated wholly to God. That's the meaning of sainthood. Saints in all a kaya. But in conclusion, I want you to notice in this salute to the church, not only the author of the salutation, not only the addressees of the salutation, but what we're going to call in these closing moments the appropriateness of the salutation. The appropriateness of the salutation. Look with me at verse 2. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. These words, of course, are identical with the greeting addressed to the same church in the first epistle. Word for word, in that first epistle, he said, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a form of salutation, which had not been fully appreciated or appropriated by the church at Corinth thus far. So Paul repeats it. Paul repeats it. And the more we examine these words of greeting, the more we are impressed with their appropriateness. For in this statement, the apostle says two tremendous things with which we conclude today. We have, first of all, what I'm going to call a purifying salutation. A purifying salutation. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are God's gifts to men. Yes, 
God's gifts to men in their sinfulness and utter restlessness. Things you see were not right in the church at Corinth. And this will become even more evident as we proceed with our study of this letter. Because of unconfessed sin, there was serious unsettlement in the life of the assembly. So Paul reminds them of the grace of God which vanquishes sin and of the peace of God which banishes fear. Paul brings these two thoughts together beautifully in the closing verses of his Roman epistle and his letter to the Thessalonians. In Romans he says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And again, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, that your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So we see that it is a purifying salutation. A purifying salutation. Grace to vanquish sin in your life. Peace to banish fear in your life. These were the two wretched problems at Corinth. There was sin and there was fear and they needed grace and they needed peace. When these gifts of God are appropriated in Christ, there's a wonderful purifying, sanctifying effect. But notice, not only a purifying but a unifying salutation, a unifying salutation. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. As someone has put it, the words grace and peace constitute a pregnant synthesis of the Greek and Hebrew greetings. The Greeks use the word grace to convey the notions of joy, brightness, and prosperity. The Hebrews employed the calmer and more solemn greeting of peace, be to thee. Christianity unites both forms of greeting. Grace, the beginning of every blessing. Peace, the end of all blessings. And into both, I may add, our Savior infuses a deeper meaning of the bond which unites East and West, Jew and Gentile. A unifying salutation. Now through God's saving grace and settling peace, men and women can be now all one in Christ Jesus. Disorder and division, remember. Disorder and division were the two main problems in the church at Corinth. So Paul offered them grace to deal with the one and peace to deal with the other. Only as the church was purified and unified could she move into creative and redemptive action for God. The same is true today, beloved. Disorder and division are the paralyzing factors in the church of Jesus Christ in America and throughout the world. Because of this weakness, she's not fulfilling her commission to proclaim the word of reconciliation or to perform the work of reconciliation. So Paul's salutation comes to us with a relevance both revealing and refreshing. Let us turn to God our Father and through our Lord Jesus Christ and appropriate the grace and peace to finish our task with spirit-anointed authority and spirit-appointed activity. You show me a church anywhere. Show me a church in America. Show me a church on the mission field where the twin problems of disorder and disunity have been answered by the appropriation of the grace of God for one and the appropriation of the peace of God for the other. One dealing with disorder, the other with division. And I'll tell you, there'll be a local assembly that God looks down upon with great joy, for the Bible says it is good and it is pleasant. 
for brethren to dwell together in unity, for there, there, the oil is poured forth, even from the head down to the very hem of the garment. Who is our head? The Lord Jesus. Who is it that poured forth the Holy Spirit? He did at the request of the Father. And that oil of the Spirit is poured out upon a united church, a local church. There, there, says the psalmist, the dew is distilled upon the mounts of Hermon, and that oil speaks of the fragrance of the Spirit, and that dew speaks of the freshness of the Spirit. And the psalmist goes on to say, there God commands the blessing, even life forevermore. So you have the fragrance, you have the fullness, and you have the freshness of the mighty Spirit poured out upon a united church, a church that's master disorder, a church that's master division, a church that's become united so that the mighty Spirit of God flows through the church in action to a desperate, needy world. A salute to the church. The author with his authority and activity in the will of God. The addressees, a local church at the heart of a great city, with wickedness abounding on every hand, yet called saints to be sure, linked with every other saint throughout the world. The appropriateness of this salutation. There's grace and there's peace for every individual in this place here this morning and for us as a church. Grace to cover every sin. Peace to reign and rule within. God's twin gifts to unite us, to purify us, and to motivate us into action in a world that desperately needs the message of reconciliation. And as we think of these precious words of salutation, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let our prayer this morning be, God of grace, who pardons sin, give thy peace to dwell within. Purify, unite, and bless hearts that long for holiness. Then anoint with mighty power, lives prepared to match this hour. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow in thy presence, our hearts are deeply stirred by the trenchant truths that we've examined here today. And as we think of our responsibility here at Calvary to reach the world by radio and television at missionary enterprise, oh, grant that this salute to the church may cause us to stand to our feet, to give ourselves as never before, to give our prayers as never before, to give our gifts and substance as never before, that the message may reach even unto the uttermost part of the earth. Hear our prayer and seal this message home to every heart. We ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.